Section 22 of the Works of the Right Honourable Edmund Burke, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. The Works of the Right Honourable Edmund Burke, Volume 1, by Edmund Burke. Part 5 of Observations on a Late Publication, intitulated The Present State of the Nation. In speaking of a foreign revenue, the very pretense to accuracy would be the most inaccurate thing in the world. Neither the author nor I can with certainty authenticate the information we communicate to the public, nor in an affair of eternal fluctuation arrive at perfect exactness. All we can do, and this we may be expected to do, is to avoid gross errors and blunders of a capital nature. We cannot order the proper officer to lay the accounts before the house, but the reader must judge on the probability of the accounts we lay before him. The author speaks of France as raising her supplies for war by taxes within the year, and of her debt as a thing scarcely worthy of notice. I affirm that she borrowed large sums in every year, and has thereby accumulated an immense debt. This debt continued, after the war, infinitely to embarrass her affairs, and to find some means for its reduction was then and has ever since been the first object of her policy. But she has so little succeeded in all her efforts that the perpetual debt of France is at this hour little short of one hundred million pounds sterling, and she stands charged with at least forty million of English pounds on life rents and tontines. The annuities paid at this day at the Hôtel de Ville of Paris, which are by no means her sole payments of that nature, amount to one hundred and thirty-nine million of livres, that is, to six million three hundred and eighteen thousand pounds besides billets au porteur and various detached and unfunded debts to a great amount and which bear an interest at the end of the war the interest payable on her debt amounted to upwards of seven millions sterling monsieur de la verdie the last hope of the french finances was called in to aid in the reduction of an interest so light to our author so intolerably heavy upon those who are to pay it. After many unsuccessful efforts towards reconciling arbitrary reduction with public credit, he was obliged to go the plain high road of power and to impose a tax of 10% upon a very great part of the capital debt of that kingdom, and this measure of present ease to the destruction of future credit produced about £500,000 a year which was carried to their caisse d'amortissement, or sinking fund. But so unfaithfully and unsteadily has this and all the other articles which compose that fund been applied to their purposes, that they have given the state but very little even of present relief, since it is known to the whole world that she is behindhand on every one of her establishments. Since the year 1763, there has been no operation of any consequence on the French finances, and in this enviable condition is France at present with regard to her debt. 
everybody knows that the principle of the debt is but a name the interest is the only thing which can distress a nation take this idea which will not be disputed and compare the interest paid by england with that paid by france interest paid by france funded and unfunded for perpetuity or on lives after the tax of ten per cent six million five hundred thousand pounds interest paid by england as stated by the author page twenty seven four million six hundred thousand pounds interest paid by france exceeds that paid by england one million nine hundred thousand pounds the author cannot complain that i state the interest paid by england as too low he takes it himself as the extremist term nobody who knows anything of the french finances will affirm that i state the interest paid by that kingdom too high it might be easily proved to amount to a great deal more even this is near two millions above what is paid by england there are three standards to judge of the good condition of a nation with regard to its finances first the relief of the people second the equality of supplies to establishments third the state of public credit try france on all these standards although our author very liberally administers relief to the people of france its government has not been altogether so gracious since the peace she has taken off but a single vingtieme or shilling in the pound and some small matter in the capitation but if the government has relieved them in one point it has only burdened them the more heavily in another the tie footnote a tax rated by the intendant in each generality on the presumed fortune of every person below the degree of a gentleman End footnote. the tie that grievous and destructive imposition which all their financiers lament without being able to remove or to replace has been augmented no less than six millions of livres or two hundred and seventy thousand pounds english a further augmentation of this or other duties is now talked of and it is certainly necessary to their affairs so exceedingly remote from either truth or verisimilitude is the author's amazing assertion quote, that the burdens of france in the war were in a great measure temporary and must be greatly diminished by a few years of peace end quote in the next place if the people of france are not lightened of taxes so neither is the state disburdened of charges i speak from very good information that the annual income of that state is at this day thirty millions of livres or one million three hundred and fifty thousand pounds sterling short of a provision for their ordinary peace establishment so far are they from the attempt or even hope to discharge any part of the capital of their enormous debt indeed under such extreme straitness and distraction labours the whole body of their finances so far does their charge outrun their supply in every particular that no man i believe who has considered their affairs with any degree of attention or information but must hourly look for some extraordinary convulsion in that whole system the effect of which on france and even on all europe it is difficult to conjecture in the third point of view their credit 
let the reader cast his eye on a table of the price of French funds, as they stood a few weeks ago, compared with the state of some of our English stocks, even in their present low condition. French, 5% 63, 4% not taxed 57, 3% not taxed 49. British bank stock 5.5, 159, 4% cons 100, 3% cons 88. This state of the funds of France and England is sufficient to convince even prejudice and obstinacy that if France and England are not in the same condition, as the author affirms they are not, the difference is infinitely to the disadvantage of France. This deprecation of their funds has not much the air of a nation lightening burdens and discharging debts. Such is the true comparative state of the two kingdoms in those capital points of view. Now as to the nature of the taxes which provide for this debt, as well as for their ordinary establishments, the author has thought proper to affirm that they are comparatively light, that she has mortgaged no such oppressive taxes as ours. His effrontery on this head is intolerable. Does the author recollect a single tax in England to which something parallel in nature and as heavy in burden does not exist in France? Does he not know that the lands of the noblesse are still under the load of the greater part of the old feudal charges, from which the gentry of England have been relieved for upwards of a hundred years, and which were in kind, as well as burden, much worse than our modern land tax? Besides that, all the gentry of France serve in the army on very slender pay, and to the utter ruin of their fortunes, all those who are not noble have their lands heavily taxed. Does he not know that wine, brandy, soap, candles, leather, saltpetre, gunpowder are taxed in France? Has he not heard that government in France has made a monopoly of that great article of salt, that they compel the people to take a certain quantity of it and at a certain rate, both rate and quantity fixed at the arbitrary pleasure of the imposer? Footnote. Before the war, it was sold to, or rather forced on, the consumer at 11 sous, or about fivepence the pound. What it is at present, I am not informed. Even this will appear no trivial imposition. In London, salt may be had at a penny farthing per pound from the last retailer. End footnote. That they pay in France the taille, an arbitrary imposition on presumed property, that a tax is laid in fact and name on the same arbitrary standard upon the acquisitions of their industry, and that in France a heavy capitation tax is also paid from the highest to the very poorest sort of people. Have we taxes of such weight or anything at all of the compulsion in the article of salt? Do we pay any taillage, any faculty tax, any industry tax? Do we pay any capitation tax whatsoever? I believe the people of London would fall into an agony to hear of such taxes proposed upon them as are paid at Paris. There is not a single article of provision for man or beast 
which enters that great city and is not excised corn hay meal butcher's meat fish fowls everything i do not here mean to censure the policy of taxes laid on the consumption of great luxurious cities i only state the fact we should be with difficulty brought to hear of a tax of fifty shillings upon every ox sold in smithfield yet this tax is paid in paris wine the lower sort of wine little better than english small beer pays tuppence a bottle we indeed tax our beer but the imposition on small beer is very far from heavy in no part of england are eatables of any kind the object of taxation in almost every other country in europe they are excised more or less i have by me the state of the revenues of many of the principal nations on the continent and on comparing them with ours i think i am fairly warranted to assert that england is the most lightly taxed of any of the great states of europe they whose unnatural and sullen joy arises from a contemplation of the distresses of their country will revolt at this position but if i am called upon i will prove it beyond all possibility of dispute even though this proof should deprive these gentlemen of the singular satisfaction of considering their country as undone and though the best civil government the best constituted and the best managed revenue that ever the world beheld should be thoroughly vindicated from their perpetual clamours and complaints as to our neighbour and rival france in addition to what i have here suggested i say and when the author chooses formally to deny i shall formally prove it that her subjects pay more than england on a computation of the wealth of both countries that her taxes are more injudiciously and more oppressively imposed more vexatiously collected come in a smaller proportion to the royal coffers and are less applied by far to the public service i am not one of those who choose to take the author's word for this happy and flourishing condition of the french finances rather than attend to the changes the violent pushes and the despair of all her own financiers does he choose to be referred for the easy and happy condition of the subject in france to the remonstrances of their own parliaments written with such an eloquence feeling and energy as i have not seen exceeded in any other writings the author may say their complaints are exaggerated and the effects of faction i answer that they are the representations of numerous grave and most respectable bodies of men upon the affairs of their own country but allowing that discontent and faction may prevent the judgment of such venerable bodies in france we have as good a right to suppose that the same causes may fool as probably have produced from a private however respectable person that frightful and i trust i have shown groundless representation of our own affairs in england the author is so conscious of the dangerous effects of that representation that he thinks it necessary and very necessary it is to guard against them he assures us quote, that he has not made that display of the difficulties of his country to expose her councils to the ridicule of other states 
or to provoke a vanquished enemy to insult her, nor to excite the people's rage against their governors, or sink them into a despondency of the public welfare. End quote. I readily admit this apology for his intentions. God forbid I should think any man capable of entertaining so execrable and senseless a design. The true cause of his drawing so shocking a picture is no more than this, and it ought rather to claim our pity than excite our indignation. He finds himself out of power, and this condition is intolerable to him. The same sun which gilds all nature and exhilarates the whole creation does not shine upon disappointed ambition. It is something that rays out of darkness and inspires nothing but gloom and melancholy. Men in this deplorable state of mind find a comfort in spreading the contagion of their spleen. They find an advantage too, for it is a general popular error to imagine the loudest complainers for the public to be the most anxious for its welfare. If such persons can answer the ends of relief and profit to themselves, they are apt to be careless enough about either the means or the consequences. Whatever this complainant's motives may be, the effects can by no possibility be other than those which he so strongly, and I hope truly, disclaims all intention of producing. To verify this, the reader has only to consider how dreadful a picture he has drawn in his thirty-second page of the state of this kingdom. Such a picture, as I believe, has hardly been applicable, without some exaggeration, to the most degenerate and undone commonwealth that ever existed. Let this view of things be compared with the prospect of a remedy which he proposes in the page directly opposite, and the subsequent. I believe no man living could have imagined it possible, except for the sake of burlesquing a subject, to propose remedies so ridiculously disproportionate to the evil so full of uncertainty in their operation, and depending for their success in every step upon the happy event of so many new, dangerous, and visionary projects. It is not amiss that he has thought proper to give the public some little notice of what they may expect from his friends when our affairs shall be committed to their management. Let us see how the accounts of disease and remedy are balanced in his state of the nation. In the first place, on the side of evils, he states, quote, an impoverished and heavily burdened public, a declining trade and decreasing specie, the power of the crown never so much extended over the great, but the great without influence over the lower sort, parliament losing its reverence with the people, the voice of the multitude set up against the sense of the legislature, a people luxurious and licentious, impatient of rule and despising all authority, government relaxed in every sinew and a corrupt, selfish spirit pervading the whole, an opinion of many that the form of government is not worth contending for, no attachment in the bulk of the people towards the constitution no reverence for the customs of our ancestors, no attachment but to private interest, nor any zeal but for selfish gratifications, trade and manufactures going to ruin, Great Britain in danger of becoming tributary to France, 
and the descent of the crown dependent on her pleasure ireland in case of a war to become a prey to france and great britain unable to recover ireland ceded by treaty note the author never can think of a treaty without making sessions End note. in order to purchase peace for herself the colonies left exposed to the ravages of a domestic or the conquest of a foreign enemy End quote. gloomy enough god knows the author well observes quote, that a mind not totally devoid of feeling cannot look upon such a prospect without horror and a heart capable of humanity must be unable to hear its description End quote. he ought to have added that no man of common discretion ought to have exhibited it to the public if it were true or of common honesty if it were false but now for the comfort the day-star which is to rise in our hearts the author's grand scheme for totally reversing this dismal state of things and making us quote, happy at home and respected abroad formidable in war and flourishing in peace end quote. in this great work he proceeds with a facility equally astonishing and pleasing never was financier less embarrassed by the burden of establishments or with the difficulty of finding ways and means if an establishment is troublesome to him he lops off at a stroke just as much of it as he chooses he mows down without giving quarter or assigning reason army navy ordnance ordinary extraordinaries nothing can stand before him then when he comes to provide amalthea's horn is in his hand and he pours out with an inexhaustible bounty taxes duties loans and revenues without uneasiness to himself or burden to the public insomuch that when we consider the abundance of his resources we cannot avoid being surprised at the extraordinary attention to savings but it is all the exuberance of his goodness this book has so much of a certain tone of power that one would be almost tempted to think it written by some person who has been high in office a man is generally rendered somewhat a worse reasoner for having been a minister in private the assent of listening and obsequious friends in public the venal cry and prepared vote of a passive senate confirm him in habits of begging the question with impunity and asserting without thinking himself obliged to prove had it not been for some such habits the author could never have expected that we should take his estimate for a peace establishment solely on his word the estimate which he gives is the great groundwork of his plan for the national redemption and it ought to be well and firmly laid or what must become of the superstructure one would have thought the natural method in a plan of reformation would be to take the present existing estimates as they stand and then to show what may be practicably and safely defalcated from them this would i say be the natural course and what would be expected from a man of business but this author takes a very different method for the ground of his speculation of a present peace establishment he resorts to a former speculation of the same kind which was in the mind of the minister of the year seventeen sixty four indeed it never existed anywhere else 
Quote, the plan, says he, with his usual ease, has been already formed and the outline drawn by the administration of 1764. I shall attempt to fill up the void and obliterated parts and trace its operation. The standing expense of the present, note, his projected, end note, peace establishment, improved by the experience of the two last years, may be thus estimated, end quote. And he estimates it, at £3,468,161. Here too, it would be natural to expect some reasons for condemning the subsequent actual establishments, which have so much transgressed the limits of his plan of 1764, as well as some arguments in favour of his new project, which has in some articles exceeded, in others fallen short, but on the whole is much below his old one. Hardly a word on any of these points. The only points, however, that are in the least essential. For unless you assign reasons for the increase or diminution of the several articles of public charge, the playing at establishments and estimates is an amusement of no higher order and of much less ingenuity than questions and commands, or what is my thought like? To bring more distinctly, under the reader's view, this author's strange method of proceeding, I will lay before him the three schemes, namely, the idea of the ministers in 1764, the actual estimates of the two last years, as given by the author himself, and lastly, the new project of his political millennium. Plan of Establishment for 1764, as by Considerations, page 43, £3,609,700. Footnote. The figures in the considerations are wrongly cast up. It should be £3,608,700. End footnote. Medium of 1767 and 1768, as by State of the Nation, page 29 and 30, three million nine hundred and nineteen thousand three hundred and seventy five pounds present peace establishment as by the project in state of the nation page thirty three three million four hundred and sixty eight thousand one hundred and sixty one pounds it is not from anything our author has anywhere said that you are enabled to find the ground much less the justification of the immense difference between these several systems. You must compare them yourself, article by article. No very pleasing employment, by the way, to compare the agreement or disagreement of two chimeras. I now only speak of the comparison of his own two projects. As to the latter of them, it differs from the former by having some of the articles diminished and others increased. I find the chief article of reduction arises from the smaller deficiency of land and malt, and of the annuity funds, which he brings down to £295,561. In his new estimate, from £502,400, which he had allowed for those articles in the considerations. With this reduction owing, as it must be, merely to a smaller deficiency of funds, he has nothing at all to do. It can be no work and no merit of his. 
but with regard to the increase the matter is very different it is all his own the public is loaded for anything we can see to the contrary entirely gratis the chief articles of the increase are on the navy and on the army and ordnance extraordinaries the navy being estimated in his state of the nation fifty thousand pounds a year more and the army and ordnance extraordinaries forty thousand pounds more than he had thought proper to allow for them in that estimate of his considerations which he makes the foundation of his present project he has given no sort of reason stated no sort of necessity for this additional allowance either in the one article or the other what is still stranger he admits that his allowance for the army and ordnance extras is too great and expressly refers you to the considerations where far from giving seventy five thousand pounds a year to that service as the state of the nation has done the author apprehends his own scanty provision of thirty five thousand pounds to be by far too considerable and thinks it may well admit of further reductions footnote the author of the state of the nation page thirty four informs us that the sum of seventy five thousand pounds allowed by him for the extras of the army and ordnance is far less than was allowed for the same service in the years seventeen sixty seven and seventeen sixty eight it is so undoubtedly and by at least two hundred thousand pounds he sees that he cannot abide by the plan of the considerations in this point nor is he willing wholly to give it up such an enormous difference as that between thirty five thousand pounds and three hundred thousand pounds puts him to a stand should he adopt the latter plan of increased expense he must then confess that he had on a former occasion egregiously trifled with the public at the same time all his future promises of reduction must fall to the ground if he stuck to the thirty five thousand pounds he was sure that every one must expect from him some account how this monstrous charge came to continue ever since the war when it was clearly unnecessary how all those successions of ministers his own included came to pay it and why his great friend in parliament and his partisans without doors came not to pursue to ruin at least to utter shame the authors of so groundless and scandalous a profusion in this strait he took a middle way and to come nearer the real state of the service he outbid the considerations at one stroke forty thousand pounds at the same time he hints to you that you may expect some benefit also from the original plan but the author of the considerations will not suffer him to escape it he has pinned him down to his thirty five thousand pounds for that is the sum he has chosen not as what he thinks will probably be required but as making the most ample allowance for every possible contingency see that author pages forty two and forty three End footnote. thus according to his own principles this great economist falls into a vicious prodigality and is as far in his estimate from a consistency with his own principles as with the real nature of the services still however his present establishment differs from its archetype of seventeen sixty four by being though raised in particular parts 
upon the whole about one hundred and forty-one thousand pounds smaller. It is improved, he tells us, by the experience of the last two years. One would have concluded that the peace establishment of these two years had been less than that of 1764, in order to suggest to the author his improvements, which enabled him to reduce it. But how does that turn out? Peace establishment, footnote. He has done great injustice to the establishment of 1768, but I have not here time for this discussion, nor is it necessary to this argument. End footnote. Peace Establishment, 1767 and 1768, medium, £3,919,375. Ditto, estimate in the considerations for 1764, £3,609,700. Difference, £309,675. A vast increase instead of diminution. The experience, then, of the two last years ought naturally to have given the idea of a heavier establishment, but this writer is able to diminish by increasing, and to draw the effects of subtraction from the operations of addition. By means of these new powers, he may certainly do whatever he pleases. He is indeed moderate enough in the use of them, and condescends to settle his establishments at £3,468,161 a year. However, he has not yet done with it. He has further ideas of saving and new resources of revenue. These additional savings are principally two. First, it is to be hoped, says he, that the sum of £250,000, which in the estimate he allows for the deficiency of land and malt, will be less by £37,924. Footnote. In making up this account, he falls into a surprising error of arithmetic. Quote, the deficiency of the land tax in the year 1754 and 1755, when it was at two shillings, amounted to no more on a medium than £49,372 to which, if we add half the sum, it will give us £79,058, as the peace deficiency at three shillings, end quote. Total, £49,372. Add the half, £24,686. Makes £74,058, which he makes £79,058. This is indeed in disfavour of his argument, but we shall see that he has ways by other errors of reimbursing himself. End footnote. Second, that the sum of £20,000 allowed for the Foundling Hospital and £1,800 for American surveys will soon cease to be necessary as the services will be completed. What follows with regard to the resources is very well worthy the reader's attention. Of this estimate, says he, quote, upwards of £300,000 will be for the plantation service, and that sum, I hope, the people of Ireland and the colonies might be induced to take off Great Britain and defray between them in the proportion of £200,000 by the colonies and £100,000 by Ireland, end quote. 
Such is the whole of this mighty scheme. Take his reduced estimate, and his further reductions, and his resources altogether, and the result will be, he will certainly lower the provision made for the navy. He will cut off largely, God knows what or how, from the army and ordnance extraordinaries. He may be expected to cut off more. He hopes that the deficiencies on land and malt will be less than usual, and he hopes that America and Ireland might be induced to take off £300,000 of our annual charges. If any of these hopes, mights, insinuations, expectations and inducements should fail him, there will be a formidable gaping breach in his whole project. If all of them should fail, he has left the nation without a glimmering of hope in this thick night of terrors which he has thought fit to spread about us. If every one of them which attended with success would signify anything to our revenue can have no effect but to add to our distractions and dangers, we shall be, if possible, in a still worse condition from his projects of cure than he represents us from our original disorders. Before we examine into the consequences of these schemes and the probability of these savings, let us suppose them all real and all safe, and then see what it is they amount to and how he reasons on them. Deficiency on land and malt, less by £37,000. Foundling Hospital, £20,000. American Surveys, £1,800. Total, £58,800. This is the amount of the only articles of saving he specifies, and yet he chooses to assert, quote, that we may venture on the credit of them to reduce the standing expenses of the estimate Note from three million four hundred and sixty eight thousand one hundred and sixty one pounds end note to three million three hundred thousand pounds end quote. that is for a saving of fifty eight thousand pounds he is not ashamed to take credit for a defalcation from his own ideal establishment in a sum of no less than one hundred and sixty eight thousand one hundred and sixty one pounds Suppose even that we were to take up the estimate of the considerations, which is, however, abandoned in the state of the nation, and reduce his £75,000 extraordinaries to the original £35,000, still all these savings joined together give us but £98,800, that is, near £70,000 short of the credit he calls for, and for which he has neither given any reason nor furnished any data whatsoever for others to reason upon. Such are his savings as operating on his own project of a peace establishment. Let us now consider them as they affect the existing establishment and our actual services. He tells us the sum allowed in his estimate for the Navy is, quote, £69,321 less than the grant for that service in 1767. But in that grant, £30,000 was included for the purchase of hemp, and a saving of about £25,000 was made in that year. End quote. The author has got some secret in arithmetic. These two sums put together amount, in the ordinary way of computing, 
to £55,000 and not to £69,321. On what principle has he chosen to take credit for £14,321 more? To what this strange inaccuracy is owing, I cannot possibly comprehend, nor is it very material where the logic is so bad and the policy so erroneous, whether the arithmetic be just or otherwise. But in a scheme for making this nation, quote, happy at home and respected abroad, formidable in war and flourishing in peace, end quote, it is surely a little unfortunate for us that he has picked out the navy as the very first object of his economical experiments. Of all the public services, that of the navy is the one in which tampering may be of the greatest danger, which can worst be supplied upon an emergency, and of which any failure draws after it the longest and heaviest train of consequences. I am far from saying that this or any service ought not to be conducted with economy, but I will never suffer the sacred name of economy to be bestowed upon arbitrary defalcation of charge. The author tells us himself, quote, that to suffer the navy to rot in harbour for want of repairs and marines would be to invite destruction, end quote. It would be so. When the author talks, therefore, of savings on the navy estimate, it is incumbent on him to let us know not what sums he will cut off, but what branch of that service he deems superfluous. Instead of putting us off with unmeaning generalities, he ought to have stated what naval force, what naval works, and what naval stores, with the lowest estimated expense, are necessary to keep our marine in a condition commensurate to its great ends. And this too not for the contracted and deceitful space of a single year, but for some reasonable term. Everybody knows that many charges cannot be in their nature regular or annual. In the year 1767, a stock of hemp and so on was to be laid in. That charge intermits, but it does not end. Other charges of other kinds take their place. Great works are now carrying on at Portsmouth, but not of greater magnitude than utility, and they must be provided for. A year's estimate is therefore no just idea at all of a permanent peace establishment. Had the author opened this matter upon these plain principles, a judgment might have been formed how far he had contrived to reconcile national defence with public economy. Till he has done it, those who had rather depend on any man's reason than the greatest man's authority will not give him credit on this head for the saving of a single shilling. As to those savings which are already made, or in course of being made, whether right or wrong, he has nothing at all to do with them. They can be no part of his project, considered as a plan of reformation. I greatly fear that the error has not lately been on the side of profusion. End of section 22